good morning, everyone. Um, I'm, uh, I'm very honored, of course, to be with you here today. And um, although uh, I'm not going to do so in quite such, with quite such generous length, um, I do want to express my appreciation to uh, Ross and Beth, um, who are really in many ways responsible for my being here today. Um, and, uh, you know, have been our dear friends and neighbors for more than 15 years. Um, Let me begin by saying, you know, I think we've all heard words, phrases uh, like, you know, market-based solutions, the magic of the marketplace, uh, democratic market capitalism, free market society, a large part of our public discourse about economics and politics is conducted in this language. Uh, And yet, uh, I think most of us, most of us actually, uh, I mean, we go to supermarkets, we buy and sell things all the time, but most of us, I think, give too little thought to what exactly is this thing, the market, that we worship. And what are the ethical implications of the power we have placed in the hands of markets? What kind of people inhabit a market-based society? And and what does it mean when we define ourselves, as Adam Smith defined us, as creatures with, quote, a desire to truck, barter, and exchange? Today I'm going to talk about how markets are good, but that it is easy to have too much of a good thing. And it is also easy and destructive to succumb to the delusion that we human beings are no more than the aspect of ourselves that we display when we transact with each other in markets. It's important, I think, to begin with the sort of basic fact that markets, a market is not a place, despite the fact that there are places called markets. A market is a process, the process of buyers and sellers setting prices by mutual agreement. Markets determine what and who is valuable and what and who is not valuable. What is an object or a service worth in a market society? The answer is simple, what someone else will pay for it. Now, there are two powerful arguments for the ethical superiority of markets. The two most important, these two arguments are, one, that markets are democratic, and two, that markets are efficient. What do I mean by democratic? Markets on the surface promote equality. In a true market, my money is the same as your money. It doesn't matter who my parents were or who your parents were, whether I am a hip, sophisticated person or I just fell off a turnip truck. Cash is cash, whether I am black or white, straight or gay, documented or undocumented. Markets appear to obliterate privileges. The great apostles of free markets in the 18th century, Adam Smith and his colleagues, were not conservatives. They were democratic reformers. The second ethical claim does not at first appear to be an ethical claim, but is. This is the claim for the superior efficiency of markets. Markets aggregate the desires who have money, combine it, I'm sorry, markets aggregate the desires of individuals who have money, combine those desires with information about cost and risk and alternative choices possessed by buyers and sellers, and the the result is instructions in the form of prices to producers. And markets do this with astonishing speed. Think for a moment about just the the extraordinary fact that if an oil well blows out in Iran in an hour, 
tomorrow morning, your behavior will be affected by prices at the gas pump. Now, the competitive ruthlessness of markets leads to greater efficiency that leads to greater wealth for all. Or to go back to Jefferson, the best way to effectively pursue happiness is to be involved in markets. And this is also a very serious ethical claim. Consider the record of non-market societies in the last century on the issue of starvation. While Mao and Stalin had a lot of people shot, they really racked up the body count by organizing their economies in ways that led to there simply not being enough food for everyone. Or, as McKeith tells us in the Three Penny Opera, first comes the food, then the morals. So it's not surprising that many people think that all we have to do to perfect our societies is to make all our decisions by market processes, by auctions of one kind or another. In that way, we will allocate scarce resources in the best of all possible ways. Except we don't. In fact, we don't allow there to be markets in all of the most important things in our lives as individuals and as a community. Uh, Buying and selling love is frowned upon. And uh, as the Beatles tell us, it's actually impossible. What's not impossible, though, by the way, is to pretend to to sell love. And this tells us something very profound about markets. Markets, combined with the the whole nature of human beings, our inheritance, uh, encourage uh, our deceptiveness. They encourage us to pretend, to sell the pretense of authenticity. But in truth, there is no amount of money I can pay you to make you really love me. Buying and selling people permanently, slavery, or the sale of children to wealthier prospective parents is illegal, meaning not just that you can't force me to be a slave, but the law will not enforce a contract I make to voluntarily become a slave, not for any price. Buying and selling sex is illegal. Even in the days after Citizens United, literal vote buying is illegal, and so is explicit bribery. I cannot yet, in the open light of day, walk onto the floor of Congress and offer gold bullion to any member of Congress who votes my way. And yet, each of the outrageous transactions I just described would be a pure market transaction. These transactions do not involve, at least on the surface, coercion forcing people to do things against their will. So why do we not allow these market-based solutions to real problems? And then there are limits on market behavior that are even harder to explain. We fill our for-profit prisons with nonviolent drug offenders, more than half a million Americans, most of whom have simply engaged in market transactions, albeit in illegal drugs. Now here I feel compelled to make a slight digression. I cannot imagine how many Americans would have to get high to do the scale of damage to the economy and the republic that Jamie Dimon's market behavior has produced. In a similar assertion of economic freedom to that made by your corner drug dealer, in September 2009, Dimon and Goldman Sachs' Lloyd Blankfein refused to take responsibility for the financial crisis that threatened to bankrupt both J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs. The two of them successfully forced the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to step in and protect Chase and Goldman from the consequences of AIG's collapse for their massive derivatives business. This set of market actions put in motion a chain of events that has cost the public billions of dollars and cost the government the trust of the public. 
And as we know, Jamie Dimon walks the streets a free man wearing presidential cufflinks and feted by the Senate. Now, how about the things we really need done? Do we leave up to market forces, in other words, your and my willingness to pay, the task of figuring out how much military we need, or how many paved streets, or how safe commercial airlines should be? Of course, we don't do any of those things. That's not a, those things are not auctioned. Now, the military is a really interesting case. In the Roman Republic, every male citizen was on call for the legions, 10-year term of service. Now, of course, understand not every citizen of Rome, not every resident of Rome was a citizen, uh, just as is the case today here in Washington. But like Israel and Switzerland, the Roman Republic saw the military as utterly outside the market. The classically educated founders of the United States inherited from the Romans a particular horror of mercenaries. A citizen army could never be an instrument of a tyrant, while an army of mercenaries is by definition for sale. Yet even as we move further and further away from the Republican, with a small r, idea of how to defend ourselves, from universal conscription to, to in the, when World War II, to conscription of the working class in Vietnam, to a paid volunteer army in the first Gulf War, to corporate soldiers of fortune in the second Gulf War, we still don't allow military, we still don't allow market forces to determine how much we spend on the military. And let's take another paradox. Why have markets utterly failed to address climate change? Why are serious resources simply not flowing to solutions to real problems in the global marketplace? And why did resources flow instead to bad loans? To understand why markets fail, we have to understand both the preconditions and the limits of successful markets. Markets have three basic problems as processes for making important decisions, and they have one important precondition. All three problems and the precondition are not merely technical. They are political, and they are profoundly ethical. Now let's start with the precondition. Markets must have rules. Otherwise, no one will participate in them who doesn't believe that they individually have the power to enforce their own rules. And someone both neutral and powerful has to enforce the rules. Even illegal or black markets work this way to some degree, although the folks who are powerful in black markets tend not to be very neutral. Necessary rules include the very simple rules, like the existence of contract law and courts and police to enforce it, so that when I hand you the money to buy some apples, you hand me the apples and don't just walk off with my money. And necessary rules must include the very complicated, like limits on market concentration, transparency requirements, and anti-fraud laws. Back to the apples, if there's only one apple seller within reach, that person has a lot of power. Doesn't, start to, doesn't look very democratic at that point. These sorts of rules are not limitations on markets. They are preconditions for markets being democratic and efficient, for markets to be markets. But these rules really are limitations on the exercise of power, assertions that fairness and efficiency trump freedom of action. They are, these rules, these fundamental rules that no one disagrees with, are in fact profound ethical judgments at the heart of our social order. But now let's turn to the problems. First, what happens when buyers and sellers don't consider the impact, good and bad, of what they are doing to other people when they transact? 
And the reality is buyers and sellers almost never consider the impact that they have on other people. This is what economists call externalities. Externality sounds kind of vague and abstract, but consider what it really is. The steam locomotive carried passengers at unheard of speeds, and ticket prices were set to cover the cost of building the railroad, the value of, of uh, moving at 30 miles an hour, which no human being had ever done before. But the railroad sparks from the locomotives set the farmers' crops on fire. Until the, until the courts awarded damages to the farmers, the costs of incinerated cornfields were not factored into the railroad's ticket prices. So the railroads didn't bother to incur the cost of putting big, spark-catching smokestacks on the trains. Now, this explains why there is no pure market solution to global warming. None. To assert it is to assert that you intend to do nothing about global warming. And this is why our worship of markets in an age of of human-caused global warming is a threat to the survival of our civilization. Our worship of markets represents as dire a threat in this context as the Easter Islanders' worship of stone heads did to them when it led the Easter Islanders to cut down all the trees on their island to use for rollers to move the heads around. By the way, when when they cut down all the trees, they had no firewood and they had no boats. And since they lived on fish, that meant they starved and eventually ate each other. There is no more basic ethical problem than externalities. It is about the simple question of whether, as a community, we allow some of us to impose the costs of our behavior on the rest of us. But it's not just about costs or negative externalities. Think for a moment about 16th Street outside. As you drove in here, was the road bumpy or smooth? Now, how should we pay for fixing 16th Street when it gets bumpy? we could try to make the people who drive on 16th Street pay for its repair by putting up a toll booth. In fact, we could put tolls on all our streets. That would be a market solution. I once heard Peter Orzak advocate it. Would that be smart, or would it be self-defeating? Or how about education? You and I benefit tremendously from other people being educated, just as we will be badly hurt by global warming. Are we going to spontaneously pay for it? Not likely. Positive externalities mean we simply will not get an economically adequate amount of infrastructure or education if we wait for market forces to produce it, just as we won't get fire protection, law enforcement, or a military if we rely on each of us as individual economic actors to pay for it. Positive externalities are about whether we can act together in our interest as a community, History teaches that societies that can do this prosper, and those that don't collapse, as Jared Diamond described in his book by that name. The second problem, that's the first problem, is externalities. The second problem is the burden of history. Market theory is the most profoundly anti-historical of all human intellectual pursuits. When economists make models, they assume human beings were literally born yesterday, without family or social ties. This is not because economists are stupid. It's because actual human society contains too many variables to be modeled. But these simplifications of economic theory are dangerous because actual markets produce outcomes that are all about the inputs. 
Markets translate personal preferences of those with economic power into outcomes. If you don't have money, you don't get to play. Try it someday. Go to the farmer's market without any money. See how relevant you are to what goes on. And so markets are very effective mechanisms for reproducing inequality in power, power over other people. Now, lest this seem too abstract, consider the most basic question about the community we live in. Who owns the land, and how did they get it? The land this building sits on was either part of or next to, I couldn't figure it out with the time I had, exactly the history of this, but this building was certainly either part of or next to the farmlands of the Blair Estate, which, in some distant time in the past, was stolen from the Indians and was farmed by slaves. Now, in fairness to Montgomery Blair, he of the Blair Estate, he sided with the Union in the Civil War. But history does not record that he turned the returns on his slaves' labor over to them upon emancipation. In fact, he wrote some rather bitter speeches about how that shouldn't happen. The combination of inheritance laws and financial markets give the winners and their heirs in each epoch of history great power over what happens to the people who are on the other end of each epoch of our history. It doesn't really matter the merits, the productivity of Montgomery Blair's children versus the children of the slaves who lived on his farm. Markets are only democratic to the extent that we come to them with equal assets, and we never do. A more troubling fact about markets is this. The rules for markets are set by political processes, and political processes can be bought. If I accumulate wealth in one set of market processes, I can use that wealth to set the rules for the next round of the game. That way, I am certain to keep winning. That way, I don't have to pay for my negative externalities or pay my share of our community's positive externalities. That's how it's possible for for market actors to accumulate information advantages and monopoly power over other market participants. I call this the Koch brothers theorem. (laughs) The third problem is best explained through the following example that Beth mentioned in her introduction. As many of you know, the electronic devices that you are carrying in your pockets were most likely made in Foxconn's factories in southern China. Suicide rates at these factories have led to the company, Foxconn, which is a contractor for Apple and for BlackBerry and for anyone else who makes these little things, led to the company installing suicide nets around the workers' dormitories. Ten days ago, more than 1,000 workers at one such factory rioted, protesting brutal treatment by company security guards. Now, Apple says that the labor cost of an iPhone is $6.54. So let's say that we increase that labor cost and thus the price of an Apple iPhone by $2. That would be almost a 30% increase in labor costs. Now the result of that, say, is that we would shorten the working week. I'm just assuming this is what would happen. We would do that by shortening the working week at Foxconn and paying the teenagers who work there enough so they could afford to visit their families by train more often. These are, by the way, the big issues at Foxconn. And let's say that those changes cut the suicide rate in half at Foxconn, saving the lives of eight people. Now, Apple sells 140 million iPhones a year. So that would mean that the cost of saving the eight lives would be about $18 million a life. But let me tell you something. (laughs) Yeah, someone didn't like it. 
But let me tell you something. Markets do not value young Chinese women at $18 million each. In fact, markets don't value you and I at $18 million each. Here in Montgomery County, we value, or in the city of Washington, Montgomery County, in the United States, we value life in our courts at the sum of the dead person's future earnings. If a drunk driver hit and killed you or me as we walked out of here this morning, absent punitive damages, a D.C. jury would not award our heirs $18 million, unless, of course, you were a very fortunate person with a very large income. Maybe not even a tenth of that. So do you feel good now about those nets at Foxconn, about the $2 you and I saved at the cost of those young women's lives? And by the way, do you think your earnings power, the salary you will earn for the rest of your life, is what you are worth? If this doesn't feel right to you, you are experiencing the third problem, the core ethical problem with market-based decision-making. Markets have no opinion about the moral value of what people want and no limit as to what can be done to me in the name of your desire. Say you're in my desire for an iPhone, so long as we have the buying power and those Chinese women don't. Now, this is what Immanuel Kant meant when he attacked utilitarian market-oriented ethical philosophy. Kant said that the first rule of ethics is not how to obtain the greatest utility for the greatest number, as Kant's contemporary and nemesis, Jeremy Bentham, argued it was. Kant said that the first rule of ethics is not to treat our fellow human beings as, quote, mere means to our ends. Absent limits on market logic, we all end up treating others as mere means to our ends. Modern life allows us to do so at great distances, social and geographic, so we can pretend we are not doing so, so we can sleep at night, so that we don't have to think about exactly how the electricity that powers our central air that literally allows us to sleep at night is generated, or where the air conditioner was made and under what circumstances, or what will happen to it when we throw it out, what garbage dump it will end up in, what child will pick through that garbage dump, who will get rich off of that child's labor. Regulations are supposed to remedy externalities, to put Kantian limits on the ability of markets to reduce each of us to the mere means of anonymous consumers or investors. Yet in our time, our country has made the market into a kind of deity. The collective judgments of those of us who, for whatever reasons, our hard work, our good luck in our own life or in our choice of parents or of our race, have income or capital. This idolatry has the effect of turning each of us into mere means to others' ends. Now, I visited the Soviet Union when it really was the Soviet Union, when markets were at the margins of their society. And I saw the deprivation, the demoralization, and the sense of arbitrary power and privilege that is associated with a state-dominated economy. But our society is now in danger of becoming one where market dynamics overwhelm both our individual humanity and our ability to provide for the common good. And this type of imbalance affects not just what happens to us. It affects who we are. Wordsworth wrote when he was young, before he got crabby, of his fellow early Victorians, like us, avid utilitarians. Wordsworth said, the world is too much with us, late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. 
Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. What we give away when we allow our commercial inclinations to dominate our individual and collective lives is our capacity for community, for empathy, for family, the ties that bind us to one another. Commercial life, bargaining, is all about the art of looking out for yourself, disguising your true intentions, being cagey with information, gathering information on your counterparty. Uh, I speak from experience of these matters. Markets create human relationships of radical uncertainty. In The Godfather, part two, Francis Ford Coppola shows us Michael Corleone trying to maintain his family as an oasis of trust and warmth in a world of treachery, the world he calls business. The movie reveals Michael's effort as utterly deluded and futile. And in fact, most of us can't possibly survive in any sense in a world governed, in a life, in an existence governed directly by markets every day at every moment, even at work. Most of us go to work every day accepting of settled relationships. We do not stand at the receptionist's desk and demand to negotiate before we start work. And neither do our employers before they let us in. But our employers could. And because most of us live from paycheck to paycheck, most of us would be utterly at the mercy of our employers if they chose tomorrow morning to tell us if we wanted to keep working, we would have to take a 20% pay cut. And in a sense, that's exactly what most employers did following the economic crisis of 2008, when wages fell and work burdens rose. But consider this. In 1960, a third of all the workers in the private sector in the United States engaged in collective bargaining and had union contracts, legal protection against the radical uncertainty in the power imbalance I just described. Today, less than 7% do. Now, here's the final irony about markets. People don't like being treated as mere means. When popular majorities resist being treated as mere means, they tend to turn to political democracy to rein in the power of markets, particularly financial markets. But then the winners in the last round of market interaction usually fight back using their accumulated wealth. Perhaps this sounds familiar to you. In the name of freedom and property rights, the winners in what began as a democratic process, the democracy of markets, seek to shut down political democracy. And of course, shutting down political democracy in the name of freedom ends up looking pretty much like doing so in the name of tyranny. Now, lest you think this is a hypothetical, I had this very discussion with a former senior financial policymaker in our government, who now works for the banks as a consultant, two days ago, who told a large roomful of other influential people behind closed doors, which is why I'm not naming this person, with a straight face that, quote, democracy is not well suited to financial regulatory matters. And just to show that these problems are not uniquely American, I'm going to close with two quotes about how these issues played out badly in France in the last century. We should consider them a warning. 
Uh, A.J. Liebling uh, was a New Yorker writer who was in Paris for the fall of France. If you're not familiar with his work, I strongly urge you to check it out. He's one of the great writers of, the modern, of modern America. He, uh, he interviewed a right-wing politician after they were both safely in London. Why the French industrialists, quote, arrived at their policy of collaboration. And the response was this, and this is a quote not from Liebling, but from a powerful French politician, name by name. I'm not mentioning it because it wouldn't mean anything to you, or to me for that matter. The politician's response was this. The great industrialists had never contributed so largely as they did in the 1932 election, and they were badly beaten. So they said, what has the republic come to when you can't even buy an election? Evidently, it is time to change the system of government. So they began to back the French fascist movements. This is, again, this is a quote. Expecting to take power by a coup d'etat. The coup didn't come off. Then they gave up on accomplishing anything from inside France and decided to await for the arrival of the Germans. Being French, they felt particularly bad because they had wasted so much money. Now, the, French's, the French industrialists' chosen agent for turning their country over to the Nazis was the aging military hero Marshal Patin. George Orwell wrote of Patin at roughly the same time as Liebling was writing, quote, Patin attributes the fall of France to the, quote, common people's love of pleasure. Orwell continues, one sees this in its right perspective if one stops to wonder how much pleasure the ordinary French peasant's or working man's life would contain compared to Patin's own. All that the working man demands is what these others would consider the indispensable minimum without which human life cannot be lived at all. Now, I read this quote from the distant past, and I think not of a long-dead, mustachioed French traitor, but of Pete Peterson, leveraged buyout king, personal worth in excess of $1 billion, who personally contributed at least $458 million to cast Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and government spending as in a state of crisis requiring that benefits be cut. Pete Peterson is 86 years old. He has spent this vast fortune on PR firms, K Street shops, and intellectual hirelings in the passionate hope that somehow, in the few remaining years he has left, he will have the emotional satisfaction of cutting the Social Security cost of living adjustments or taking away the Medicare benefits of people whose names he cannot remember, but who all through his life have fed him his food, dug the coal that heats and lights his many houses, made and pressed his clothes, carried out his garbage, and cleaned his toilets. Now this is the sort of thing that is possible when markets become our masters and not our servants. But it does not have to be this way. These are choices we make. We make them as a society. We make them as individuals. Increasingly, we make them as a planet. It, it was not always thus. It does not have to be thus in the future. Ultimately, to, just to show you how pervasive these matters are, ultimately, the last thing I have to say to you is what the Russian poet Marina Tsvetvaya 
Svetaiva, Svetaiva, said about this matter. You can't buy me. That is the whole point. To buy is to buy oneself off. You can't buy yourself off from me. You can buy me only with the whole sky in yourself. Thank you.